we don't want to be presenting data for the sake of data. Um, and similarly, you know, you need sufficient data over sufficient periods of time to really understand how somebody's health is trending. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. What if our toilet seats were smarter? On today's episode, our guest, Nicholas Kahn, answered that question, plus many more. Nicholas Kahn is the founder and chief scientific officer at Kasana, where he developed the heart seat, the first toilet seat-based cardiovascular monitoring system. He earned his PhD in microsystem engineering from the Rochester Institute of Technology and worked there as a research scientist while developing the heart seat. In today's episode, he takes me through his career journey and how accessible medical technology is increasingly necessary. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Nick. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Christine, for having me. I'm, I'm excited to chat today and, and tell my story. Yeah, um, I thought it would be good for our uh, listener to hear a bit of your background. You have a really interesting background and what your, you know, did you ever, you know, dreamt about doing like, you know, starting this company when you're in your even 17, 18 yeah, so um, you know, my name's Nick Khan. I'm the founder and chief scientific officer of Kasana, uh, which is a healthcare company. We're we're working on building a technology product that's a, a toilet seat based cardiovascular monitoring system. And really, our mission is to provide effortless in home monitoring so that people don't have to think about it. That we can just passively monitor them and and hopefully make an impact on chronic disease and improve outcomes uh, while also lowering the costs. So. How, how did I end up making a smart toilet seat? That's always the first question. Um, growing up, I was infatuated with problem solving with engineering. And it actually started when I was quite young. My dad got me an electrical engineering kit when I was 11. And um, I immediately knew I wanted to be an electrical engineer. And everything in my life, you know, even through middle school and high school was focused on that. I, I learned programming. I did the robotics competitions. I I built an MP3 player when my parents didn't let me get one. Um, you know, I was able to to really look at the world in, in a in a way that I like to think is as an engineer does even at an early age. And I've I've always been primarily fascinated with helping people and problem solving and and trying to create things that made life easier for either myself, my friends, my parents. Um, and then as I I started growing up more, I became infatuated with the body. The body is a mystery. There's still so much that we don't understand about disease, about disease progression. Um, and I became immediately curious about neural prosthetics. So I thought, hey, this is perfect. You know, electrical engineering, um, going into neural prosthetics or prosthetics as a career path would be great. Um, but as I got into college and I went to the Rochester Institute of Technology, uh, to pursue electrical engineering with a biomedical focus, um, I realized that uh, neural prosthetics, while amazingly cool, didn't have tons of commercial applications in the near future. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I slowly began getting more exposure to cardiovascular uh, monitoring and, and that side of the healthcare 
um, system and ended up living in Berlin, Germany for a while working at Biotronic, which is an implantable medical device company there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really set the foundation for my, my passion for cardiology. Um, you know, the heart, it, heart disease is the leading cause of death worldwide. And being able to make an impact there can have immediate benefit to both people and even to the broader institutions um, like PAIRS, where the costs of, of cardiovascular disease are, are very high. Um, so, you know, continuing on with my story, I, I finished my undergrad at RIT. I ended up getting my master's there as well. And I really wanted to immediately rush into industry and start a company. I, I, had, I always had the entrepreneurial bug. Um, and my advisor convinced me to stay to get my PhD. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was quite some time before I said yes, but I'm glad I did. And um, early on, then after you know taking some of the foundational classes for the PhD, uh, he he pulled me into his office and said, "Nick, we have a grant opportunity to uh, you know propose something for in-home cardiovascular monitoring. Uh, we want to do something different. We want to stand out. You know, we want to do something innovative. Let's let's brainstorm." Mm-hmm. And we have tons of experience with these sensors, you know, being able to create them, measure various things from the human body. Um, But if people don't use those devices, um, it doesn't matter how cool the technology is. Uh, So I said, you know, what do people use every day? A steering wheel in a car, a computer mouse, maybe. Um, Mm -hmm. But what if we threw electrodes on a toilet seat? And Mm -hmm. he thought that was a great idea. Uh, I then ended up uh, doing the proof of concept. We luckily received the grant. And then uh, the next few years, I developed the technology, um, ran a slew of human subject studies uh, on over 200 human subjects in total, um, and created the seat, worked on the business plan, and mm-hmm. then eventually uh, started Kasana, which at the time was Heart Health Intelligence. Yeah. And um, I'll stop there. That's a lot. That's a lot. So we, uh, go, uh, bring us back to when you did a grant, the idea of a toilet seat. Um, how do you, you know, decide? Like, how do you make it work? I mean, like, when you think about measuring the blood pressure, people always think putting on a cuff and like sitting down. How it's almost like how is that even possible? Yeah. So uh, starting with the electrocardiogram, that's one of three key sensors that we have in the seat um, that measures the electrical activity of the heart. The second sensor that is in the seat is called the photoplasmogram. It's basically the same optical sensor that's in most wearable devices, and it's what's used for measuring blood oxygenation in a pulse oximeter. Um, so instead of on the finger, we split it open and put it on the seat. Then there's there's one missing instrument, which is the ballistic cardiogram, which measures the mechanical forces of the heart. And this is a little bit unique to our system, uh, where we're you know, looking at the slight apparent changes in your body weight as your heart beats. So when your heart beats, it, it builds up pressure. Blood is then forcefully ejected upward into the aorta. And that upward momentum will change your weight very slightly. Um, I'm simplifying some of the physics, but the principles mm-hmm. all work. Um, and we can pick up these minute changes in body weight. Uh, and it's proportional to how hard your heart's beating, to the ejection of, of blood, um, and then by fusing all those sensors together into a, a data stream for each of them, mm-hmm. we can measure things like blood pressure, heart rate, and even things like stroke volume and, and cardiac output, which is a measure of how much blood your heart is pumping, uh, which mm-hmm. is typically done in, in a clinical setting with an echocardiogram. Um, so the, the early work uh, really is focused on proving out that, hey, can we really do this? Um, right. Are the things that we see in literature from even the 1930s 
uh, do, do they work in practice? Um, and you know, it was, we really started at the foundation working with a, a cardiologist at the university of Rochester medical center as well, always with that vision in mind of how do we help patients? How do we make a tool that is not just some fun toy, um, but a real medical device? Right. And I think also sometimes when you're measuring that, uh, marker or all like, how do you know it's accurate? That is something that you know because you you you're going to use this data to monitor the patient and how do you how do you compare your data to what to make to tell that it works yeah the um this is one of the big challenges in in medical device development is that the gold standard that is often used for measuring these things themselves are quite inaccurate Mm -hmm. Um, so for example we can measure blood pressure simultaneously while someone's sitting on the seat we can put a cuff on uh, we even can do manual auscultation, which is, you know, the, the most accurate that one would get with, with a cuff, um, and simultaneously measure things on the seat and then run our algorithms and calculate a blood pressure and then see how well it performs compared to the gold standard. Um, similarly, with stroke volume, we would use echocardiogram uh, for our initial work. And, and later on, um, MRI is another way that stroke volume can be measured. Um, so measuring these things either simultaneously or as close to simultaneously as you can, you can then generate statistics and quantify how accurate you are. Um, but it is one of the big challenges I think that medical device companies, especially startups, um, face is being able to accurately capture those gold standards. Um, because even blood pressure cuffs, the allowable error is quite large. And if you take your blood pressure back to back, how often is it exactly the same or, or similar? Um, so those, those are some technical and clinical hurdles that we have while actually validating our device. And, um, you know, the last thing I'll say about that is that, you know, we're at Kasana going through the process of submitting to the FDA. Um, and, and it's really important to us that we, we do everything as above board as possible, do all the scientific rigor needed to prove out that this device really truly works, uh, which takes time. And that's sometimes challenging for a startup that wants to just move very fast. Right. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is that, so for example, with the blood pressure, um, cuff and monitor, that the, the range is pretty wide yet, but that is the gold standard. And so, but then not, not allowing new technology to have a wide range is almost double standard because it's the new, then we don't allow any more, uh, bigger range. Um, how do you, you know, I mean, is this something that you guys still pursuing? Uh, are you guys pursuing to compare your technology with the standard? And if that's the case, how do you kind of reconcile that? Yeah, so we're, we're actively running our formal validation study for eventual submission to the FDA right now, uh, where we are capturing this data. And, and it is a challenge. And one of the, the ways that you kind of address this um, challenge of inaccurate gold standard measures is to get just larger and larger data sets. So the more data that you capture, um, the more you can actually run the statistics and get power to understand your error relative to the gold standard, um, which again is challenging for startups. So the, the more subjects you need to run, uh, the more costly the study, the longer it takes, um, the more challenging it is to recruit those subjects. Um, and those are, those are all challenges that, that make it really difficult for our type of device uh, to get to the other side of these studies successfully. But, you know, it's, it's something that's really important. And, and we 
prioritize it. Um, and, you know, likewise, the, there are difficulties as well with different form factors. Um, so since we're not a cuff-based system and, and we need to measure over time, um, and we get quite a few measurements and, and we use a whole different type of, of physics, per se, mm -hmm. um, part of the way we demonstrate accuracy is to show that we track shifts well in blood pressure. So if you come back on a different day, how does your blood pressure change relative to that baseline? Um, and then that's another way that we can help show our accuracy, um, which is slightly different than how standard cuffs are, are tested, um, but it helps provide additional confidence in our measures. Yeah, no, that's I, I'm, one thing that um, that's really cool um, that you're working on that. And I like the fact that you're thinking about like everybody used the toilet seat every day. It seems like you almost reduced like not because even eliminate the whole friction about using the technology is describe to us like what the product is like it's a toilet seat that you sell yep so the heart seat is the name of our our device and the heart seat itself is completely self-contained uh it's passive it's cloud connected it's battery powered uh and it installs on a toilet bowl just like any other toilet seat you would buy from the local convenience or the local hardware store um, so it's it's really easy to install. Um, the the seat itself is, as you mentioned, designed to be easy. And, and one of my biggest pet peeves in life is technology that's difficult to use. Um, and I, I hate charging devices. The, I love wearable technology, but the only one I have is one that lasts about 30 days because I, I just won't use them if I have to <laughs> charge them every day. Uh, so the seat really is embodies that that goal of of seamlessly integrating technology into your life where you don't need to learn a new behavior. Uh, it doesn't matter if, if what your technological prowess is and how comfortable you are with technology. Um, you, you go to the bathroom typically and you'll sit on the seat and it will do its thing. And it's really install and forget. That's one of the key you know, benefits of the heart seat. Yeah. One thing that, as you're describing to me, you know, most people have multiple people using the toilet. And how does your device know oh, this is the different person? So one of the um, beautiful things about the heart seat is the, with the combination of sensors we have, we measure things that can differentiate people. Um, for example, many bathroom scales will be able to tell the difference between family members by weight alone. So by using weight, in addition to some of the other things we measure, we're able to, to differentiate between the person who's being monitored and maybe other household members. Um, so it does require you to sit down and do what we consider onboarding, where you sit, you say, this is, this is my, my recording that I just generated from sitting on the seat. Uh, similar to how you train you know, an Apple Watch to do face recognition. You first have to run it around your face once, um, and then from that time on, it will know who's who. Mm -hmm. um, so we use a similar approach um, with you know, weight and, and other data from the seat to differentiate people. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Um, so walk us through like give us some understanding a little bit you know there's so many you know now there's the, the your iphone's trying to help you monitor everybody's trying to monitor because somehow everybody believes the more data the better it is but from the clinical perspective and from the patient i mean we, at the end of the day patient wants to be healthy if the data that is provided can help me become healthier and don't have heart disease or not going to die from heart disease how, how is that translated to something in real life for our patients? 
Yeah, it's 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 interesting because uh, on your actual episode 100, Hamant from General Catalyst was on, and, and General Catalyst is an investor in Kasana, um, but he mentioned providing health to people as the product rather than care. And you know, I, I think that's an interesting vision, and it's one that we follow very strongly ourselves. So the way we look at it is that data is just part of of the picture. And at the end of the day, we have to drive outcomes. We have to improve something for people, um, whether it's you know the better outcomes, lower hospitalizations, or even potentially saving somebody's life. Those outcomes are what matter. Um, and to get to an outcome you really need some kind of intervention, whether it's your own lifestyle change or an intervention from a physician. Um, and data is just one part of this continuum where data can empower physicians or even you to proactively better manage your health and improve outcomes. Um, but more data isn't always better. Uh, you, you can get data overload, alert fatigue. These things are real and they're, they're things that then prevent you from re-engaging. Um, and it, it does have the potential to muddy the water depending on how much data you end up getting. So, you know, with the seat, we focus on relevance. And, you know, the seat, one of the key innovations is that when the data is not of high quality, we don't present a number. We don't want to be presenting data for the sake of data. Um, and similarly, you know, you need sufficient data over sufficient periods of time to really understand how somebody's health is trending. Um, and by removing the adherence barrier, which we believe is the foundation of all of this, um, you can gen generate this trend data and use it to empower physicians to then make the intervention and drive better outcomes. Yeah. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rudnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. I definitely have a personal experience with losing somebody close to me from the heart disease, uh, who show no symptoms whatsoever, living healthy and eating healthy, whatever that the doctors always tell to, in order for you to avoid heart disease, do all these things and everything is done right. Yet, you know, sometimes, you know, life offer you different genetic, um, I think having a monitor that would be helpful. Um, but again, monitor is one thing. It's, uh, you need, you do need, uh, the intervention as well. And sometimes when, you know, my, when my husband passed away, everybody told me like, you know, it's like, even if you knew early, what is he going to do about it? Like, I, well, I guess you can do bypass surgery, but, um, but then, so, you know, so I'm just trying to say like, we have all this data, but then it, do you think the intervention is there to help a lot of the things happen earlier to prevent people? Yeah, it, and it's a really delicate balance that we have to have with providing this data to the healthcare system and, and providers, um, because we want it to be a value add and we need it to be actionable. Uh, to your point, there needs to be something we can do about it. 
Um, and while the seat itself is not necessarily designed, at, at least at this point in time, to help all kinds of cardiovascular disease, uh, one of our initial focus, for example, is hypertension. Um, and being able to look at these trends over time compared to these episodic doctor's visits, um, not only is there gaps between these doctor's visits, but that one single snapshot at that particular moment may not be representative of your overall trending. So if you look back, you know, your six months ago doctor's appointment or a year ago, and your blood pressure changed. Well, is it because it's a different time of day? Is it because you're extra stressed? Um, and filling in the gaps right now with a data set like the, the heart seat can generate um, can help provide context to those doctor's visits. Um, and you know, really being able to, to see these trends over time with higher fidelity than what you get with physicians uh, with regular checkups, we think is what will help move the needle and, and empower physicians to figure out the right intervention, whether it's a medication change um, or even with other chronic diseases where we do think the seat could, could help make changes there. Yeah, no, the, um, um, continuing the conversation about the seat, I noticed on your website that you're looking for uh, st uh, studies vol volunteer or somebody who's interested. Uh, can you tell us more where you are in terms of your product development and when, at what point, uh, when do you think general public can get their product? Yeah, so we are, we're still going through the process of gaining FDA clearance. Um, we are working on uh, running our formal studies for FDA submission. But one of the really fun things about Kasana is that we're continually running subject testing and we're continually working to even focus on next generational um, capabilities for the seat. What, what can we do next? Um, and gathering data just facilitates that and, and eases development and, and helps you realize what the boundaries are for the seat and what we can do today. So um, we're, we actually run a study here in our local office. So we have a, a part of the building that's focused on running clinical studies where we invite the broader Rochester community to come in and participate in our studies. And it's, it's wildly fun because anybody mm -hmm. can come. Um, and we get to, we, we have so many people who are just so excited to be part of this journey with us that they come back every week. They're like, hey, can I come back multiple times? And we're like, great, more data over time. Yes, please. Uh, so, you know, engaging with the community in that way um, is really powerful because you get to hear people's stories um, and you get to never forget why you're building this technology, um, which at the end of the day is to help the people around us live healthier lives. Yeah. So the study is only for people who live in Rochester right now, not somebody who are outside. We run many studies. Um, we are doing this in, in the Boston area as well. Um, and then we have a, a partnership with the Villages, which is um, the largest re uh, retirement community in, in the country, I believe, in Florida, um, where we're sending seats home with residents. And it's a really exciting study where we're looking at adherence levels. Um, you know, really how well can the device be truly integrated into your everyday life? Uh, can we get data from it? Can we, you know, compare it to a blood pressure cuff and show that using the seat results in, you know, more consistent data, um, really comparing the heart seat to traditional telemonitoring. Um, we also have in-home studies. So, you know, one of the things that I'll, I'll say is uh, if you're interested in participating, sign up, even if you're not in Rochester or Boston, we do have plans to expand our studies in the future. Um, and it's it's something we're really excited about as we really open up our capabilities with the seat. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's really 
easy. It seems easy based on what I know and interesting that you can participate in a lot of, you know, the, the, the technology development. Um, and, you know, you, you can be healthy. You can't, you know, you don't have to be sick to participate in something that can help innovation in this space. So I thought that was really interesting. That's why I bring it up in case any of our listeners are interested in participating. <laughs> so <laughs> one of the things I thought would be good, like, you know, so you mentioned your engineers, but you, you do have the entrepreneurial, you've always been interested in entrepreneurial. And uh, walk us through some of the your the challenges that you face when you just started. I feel like now you have product, you have some data, you've got some funding, things are moving in the right direction. And I'm sure it was not happening overnight. Um, I'm sure there's some days that you just like, oh, is this happening? Why is this happening? It was a long journey um, to get to where we are today. It, it actually almost feels like the development of the technology was easier. Um, but then again, I am an engineer. So, um, you know, looking at the business side of things and the entrepreneurship side of things, I knew Kasana could change the world. I, I had no doubt since the day that I, I came up with the concept with my, my advisor, Dave Forkholder, who actually works with us now full time at Kasana. Um, you know, going to raise capital is a daunting task. Telling the story in a compelling way um, is something that takes a lot of refinement. And one of the, the benefits of the local entrepreneurship ecosystem in Rochester is that they are brutally honest. Uh, you can get really great feedback, really refine your story um, quite quickly uh, with the network that we have here. Raising large amounts of capital, on the other hand, can be challenging for this area. Um, so getting the support of the local investors was really important to, to refine that story. But then going out, pitching across the country, uh, months and months of no, months and months of, wow, what a great concept, but we don't think you're investment ready. Um, you know, those are, those are challenges and being able to tell a compelling story in the medical industry, specifically when you have regulatory hurdles you need to overcome is really challenging. And the best piece of advice that I had from one of my, my, uh, mentors was there is a right investor out there for you. You just have to find them. Um, and just because everybody else has said no doesn't mean you know that that you don't have an idea. Take their feedback, refine your story. They have great points, but there is an investor who who is looking for something like what you have. Um, and there was I found Bemis Manufacturing, which is the largest toilet seat manufacturer in the U.S. Um, and it it was a great match. They they were really interested. They led our first seed round, um, and as part of that seed round, we had some local entrepreneur local funds launch New York, Excel Partners, uh, as well as the Tech Coast Angels in California um, participated in the seed round, which got us started. Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges I actually think um, gets overlooked often in, in, in the broader knowledge base for, for startups and entrepreneurship is, what do you do once you raise your first round of capital? It's, it's, there's a lot of resources for here's how you go sell your story. Here's how you pitch, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and here's how you work on your business plan. Um, but actually taking $2 million one day and saying, okay, now I'm ready. I, I, I scrapped around for a year to try to raise this. Um, and holy cow, it's time to hire employees. This is awesome. Uh, and, and, you know, how to effectively utilize the resources you're given in your network uh, is something that was, was quite challenging. And I'm really grateful for um, the strong mentorship I had both at, at RIT, um, but then even branching out with some of the folks that RIT 
introduced me to, like Austin McCord, um, which I could, I could, I'll, I'll go on, I'm sure, about that next. But uh, he was instrumental in our Series A round and really making Kasana what it is today. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned about what to do with the first money, and how do you do about that? What was the advice that you got? Um, so you know, it, it's it was. I think this is one area where there's there's many different paths and many of them can be correct. Um, for a medical device, for us, it was focused on really hardening the platform uh, because when you go through the FDA pathways, you have to design your system under quality controls. You have to make sure that it's it's you know any changes you make after you run your studies really have to be rock solid from a rationalization standpoint, or you have to rerun your studies. Um, so starting and focusing on the physical device um, was really important, designing it under the quality controls um, and laying the framework for then running the more expensive studies, which you really, sh- you know, hopefully you only have to do once. Um, but if you don't do a great job designing your device and making it robust, reliable, uh, you will have to do it more than once, which is never a good thing for a startup. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned about Austin McCord, like tell Maybe you can tell us about about like what's your what do you learn from him? Why why that was so instrumental? Uh, so Austin was the founder of Dato, uh, which is a, a data backup um, startup. Which Austin grew from uh, himself to a multi billion dollar exit, uh, and and Austin is really you know an industry leader there and and has unbelievable experience growing a, a subscription service based company and and really driving technological innovation. Um, and Austin had a connection to RIT. So I met him through the university. Um, and after staying in touch for about a year, he, he called me and said, Hey, Nick, um, I remember that awesome toilet seat thing that you made. And uh, I really think that we can, we can make this even bigger than, than, you know, your, the path you're going on now. Um, and he pulled in general catalyst, which, uh, was an early investor in data. They also invested in, in many other healthcare companies uh, and have quite a great portfolio. And, and um, uh, you guys learned all about General Catalyst um, a few episodes ago. But uh, Austin came in, um, he, he stepped in as CEO and I became chief scientific officer um, and pulled in some really amazing talents and helped grow our board, um, which is now uh, chaired by Jeff Lydon, who was the former CEO of Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Uh, as well as we have Paul Sagan, who uh, works with General Catalyst and has done amazing things in his career, and uh, Khan Siddiqui, who was the founder of Higgy, which has uh, really transformed blood pressure kiosks. Um, so we have such a strong board, and um, Austin bringing in top talents and helping run the business and drive it forward. Um, you know, we we really have endless potential. And it's just a really exciting thing. It's any entrepreneur's dream to be able to to have such such industry leaders join their startup and right. grow it into something that will change the world. But I think it's also because you have this amazing uh, ideas and the fact that you can deliver a lot of the things that you've been saying that you want to do. I think that caught his attention. But you know, so I think it, it's it's also so important. And it's also a privilege to be able to find somebody uh, who is really well connected because then it brings you the best people to the your effort, right? So I think uh, kudos to you as well. 
Thank you. Like it, it makes such a huge difference having, you know, the, the building such top talent and Kasana has grown from two employees to 30 something. Um, we keep hiring more, it feels uh, every week. And um, uh, holy cow, do we have such an amazing team. Uh, we're always looking for more engineers. We're always looking for people to join. Um, but I can say with confidence that everybody who works here is just a superstar. And it's been a ton of fun, you know, building this team with with Austin at the head of, of the company, really driving um, all of this. Yeah, can't wait to see more toilet seats. It's the Kasana seats. I think that's really exciting that our seat is not just to sit, but it kind of do something more than that. Exactly. You know, it's it, we joke that um, working at Kasana is not a job; it's a calling. Um, everybody really feels so passionate and invested in what we're doing. Um, everybody just really sees the value in helping people with the technology. And, and we feel this sense of urgency where, you know, it, which is great for a startup, you want to go to market quickly. Um, but every day we're not on the market is a day that people aren't benefiting from this technology. And that's really what motivates us because, you know, there's, there's too many examples of if only, you know, we had the heart seat. Um, and, and we would love to make it, oh, good thing we had the heart seat. That's how we want to change the world. Yeah, yeah, I know that. I'm look. I'm looking forward to see uh, your seasons. Everybody's home. I think that's exciting. Likewise. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me, Christina. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer Herminio Neto and our podcast engineer Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.